the small town preacher who one Sunday morning decided to call in sick. And uh, so he called his deacon and he said, Deacon Smith, you're going to preach today. I'm sick. Whereupon his wife immediately chided him. She said, how can you lie like this? And sure enough, half an hour later, he got dressed, took his golf clubs, put them in the car, and he drove 50 miles away from town where nobody recognizes him. And so when he got to the golf course and he began to tee off, his two guardian angels began to talk to each other. One says, what should we do with this guy? Well, the first one said, um, let's send the ball into the rough where he can never find it. The second one said, um, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Let's actually give him a hole in one. He said, what do you mean? What, what, you, you, you don't want to reward this guy for lying? <laughs> and then the second angel said, well, think about it this way. Who he's going to tell? <laughs> In fact, that same scallywag said that Paul must have been a frustrated golfer because in Romans 7, he said, I keep doing the wrong things I don't want to do. <laughs> Let's get serious about the Word of God in Romans chapter 7. It's all about the issue that has been a source of confusion among Christians for many years. The confusion is this. It's between the hypocrisy of performance and the freedom that we have in the risen Christ. This is a huge issue. <laughs> so many people ended up with going with one extreme or the other, of which the Bible is innocent of both extremes. One extreme used grace as a license to sin— the other extreme is the legalism of performance. Hear me right, please. This is important because I think both extremes not only erroneous, not only wrong, but they cause a lot of frustration in the Christian life. Most often, lack of effectiveness and lack of fruitfulness in the Christian life uh, leads some people into going into flurry of activities. They just get busy doing things, programs, and all kinds of stuff, you know, just to cover up. I know employers know that some of their employees cover up for the lack of effectiveness by just activities. They're just doing things. They're busy doing some stuff, hyperactivities. It is no wonder that so many Christians are living in the bondage of performance and activism with very precious fruit to show for it. In fact, throughout the Scripture, we see examples of people who trusted more in the, their performance than in the power of God in the Word of God. You see it all the way from Cain, who trusted in what he wants to give God instead of obedience. You see it all the way at the Apostle Peter, where he trusted in his courage instead of the words of Jesus. It has been said that a person can be totally lost, even though he may sacrifice like Cain in Genesis 4. He may weep like Esau in Genesis 27. He may serve like Gehaziah, the servant of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 5. He may leave Sodom like Lot's wife 
in Genesis 19. He may tremble like Felix in Acts 24. He may have zeal for God like Israel in Romans chapter 10. Or he may be a disciple like Judas in Acts 1.25. Or he may take part in the worship like Korah in Numbers chapter 16. He may desire to die the death of a righteous like Balaam in Numbers 23. He may even have long prayers like the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He may prophesy like Saul in 1 Samuel 10.10. He may have lamps like the foolish virgins in Matthew 25. He may be a genuine seeker like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And he may even be almost a believer like King Agrippa and totally lost. The problem with reliance on performance rather than the power of the Holy Spirit leads to a life of frustration in the Christian life. Here's how it happens. You get up first thing in the morning, and you say to yourself, I've got to perform today. I've got to be good today. And then you get a little bit of success in your day, and you say, great, wow, this is great. You pat yourself on the back. boy, And you feel good. And feeling good gives way to pride. I'm really good. <laughs> I've done well. And pride leads to fall. And the fall leads to discouragement, guilt, and shame. And the process keeps going time after time after time after time. Romans chapter 7 gives us a more excellent way. Can you say that with me? More excellent way. Here Paul tells us that surrender and a total reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit will lead not only to joy, but to victory. Think about it this way. Suppose a person who's a diabetic, but he never treats his diabetes. What's going to happen? He's going to die, right? Fortunately, there is insulin, which means no one should die from diabetes. We have treatments, thank God. But suppose the same diabetic person goes on a long journey, and he does not take any of the things that he needs. He doesn't take his testing kit, his blood testing kit. He doesn't take some cans of juice. He doesn't take any of the vials of of insulin what will happen? He will go into an insulin shock, and he could die. Are you with me so far? You say, Michael, what has this got to do with my spiritual life? How is this going to work in my spiritual life? Be patient with me, okay? Here's what I believe with all my heart the Apostle Paul is trying to say to all of us. He is saying that I can find victory over sin in my life when when I approach each day realizing that I'm capable of sin. That is the testing kit, the blood testing kit for a diabetic, acknowledging that I'm very capable of sinning. Let me tell you at the outset, as your pastor, I am very capable of sinning, and I'm talking about all sins, not just some. By approaching each day acknowledging my vulnerability to sin— I am in a better position to guard against my heart. You see, that's your testing kit. That way I can appropriate the power that God made available to me through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's your insulin. (laughs) 
You got your testing kit is the acknowledgement that I am uh, capable of sinning. Then you got your insulin, which says, Jesus, I have the power to absolutely give you victory. Listen to me. I have seen this through the years. The moment you say, I got this one licked, that's the moment of trouble. I remember some time ago, a very condescending brother looked at me, and I'm talking about many years ago. Brother Yusuf, what is your weakness? I said, are you kidding? All of them. All of them. I have no strength of my own. I am weak in every area. If I have strength in my own, I'm in trouble, because I can tell you, without the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm dead meat. In Romans 7, Paul tells us about this more excellent way of living our Christian life away from the agony of performance. It is the way of freedom. It's the way of liberty. It's the way of victory over sin. In fact, there are two verses here. Let me get them out of the way, because I know particularly those of you who are great Bible scholars, you said, I want to see what he's going to say about those verses. You know the ones I'm talking about? 24 and 25. Oh, wretched man that I am, (laughs) who shall rescue me from this body of death? Now, beloved, that's a performance crying. Verse 25, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the liberty in Christ. This is the source of continuous victory. Let's look at the chapter together. But before I get to the outline, which I worked out on for you, I need to tell you that Romans chapter 7 goes more divided probably than any other chapter. In fact, it's this division has been going on ever since the Apostle Paul wrote this. Uh, whole movements started over dividing over the interpretation of Romans 7. Whole denominations even started over that division. Some say Paul was speaking about his life before Christ came into his life. Others said, no, 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 no. This is truly represents a growing, vibrant Christian life. But I'm going to tell you what I believe after 52 years of studying the Scripture, trusting in the sovereign Lord. And you've got to understand that seven comes after six. Chapter six is all about sanctification. That's a big word. It simply means growing every day like Christ growing more and more like Christ. That's what it means. It's a process, and it's continuously you working together in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So, in this chapter, Paul comes in, and he talks talking to believers who are seeking to live a godly, holy, unrighteous life. And so, in this chapter, he points out that true freedom is not in our performance— That was the old time. But in our total trust and surrender to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us by His Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Here in chapter 7, he gives us basically four pillars or foundational stones of our freedom from performance. Four pillars. First pillar, we're bound to Christ not in bondage, verses 1 to 6. Second pillar, maturity, I'm talking about spiritual maturity, builds up. Spiritual immaturity tears down, verses 7 
to 13, the third pillar. Third pillar is basically saying, do-it-yourself religion will always fail, (laughs) and you'll be frustrated, verses 14 to 23. And then the fourth pillar, surrender, will always, always keep you afloat, verses 24 and 25. Let's look at the first one. The first foundational stone of freedom from performance is that love which binds us. The Word of God is saying to every one of us that the law, He is specifically here talking about the Ten Commandments. Wonderful as they are, how can you not say the Ten Commandments are not wonderful? They are written by God Himself. They are reflecting of God's character. But the Ten Commandments, wonderful as they are, keep us in bondage. They will keep us on trying to perform, and then we blow it every time. Every time. You know what it's like, right? Maybe you're not. I do. (laughs) I mean, it's like swimming upstream. You're swimming against the current. You are making great efforts, but you're going nowhere. Or you're doing what I do four or five times a week, running on a treadmill. (laughs) Man, I run hard, but I'm not even heading one foot in front of me. If the law is the only thing we go by, we're bound to it. And we're bound to be frustrated. We're bound to stay in bondage, in the bondage of performance. We try and we fail. We try and we fail. We try and we fail. Ah, but because of Christ's redemption, we are set free from that bondage. Amen? Hear me right. The illustration that the Apostle Paul gives us here is that about the marriage vow. Now, you've got to understand. He says this, for example. When he says, for example, it's an illustration. The husband and wife are bound to each other. They're bound by the vows as long as both are living. But when one dies... The other spouse, the living spouse, is totally released from that vow, which reminds me actually of a story. A friend of mine told me about a, a, a cruise that was organized by a Christian group, but it was for widows and widowers. And uh, this particular widow kept looking at this man. Every time he walks by, she looks at him at the meal table. She's looking at him. Day after day, she's looking at him. And finally, he got you know, freaked out. He walked up to her, and he said, uh, do we know each other? She said, no, not really, not that I know of. Well, he just keep looking at me. She said, yeah, you remind me of my third husband. <laughs> he said, well, just how many husbands did you have? She said, two. <laughs> Death of the spouse sets you free from the marriage vow. And here's Paul is saying, just as death of one of the spouses brings release from the covenant of agreement of marriage, in Christ we too are released from the bondage of performance of the law. The result of that release, we found joy instead of despair, freedom instead of bondage, life instead of death, love instead of duty, willing service instead of begrudging effort. Second pillar is that maturity builds up. Immaturity tears down. Paul moves now from giving an illustration. This is an objective illustration using everyday common experience. 
about marriage and marriage vows to really giving us an autobiographical illustration. See, when Paul was a boy, like all Jewish boys, he went through his bar mitzvah. Bar means son. Mitzvah means law. is the son of the law. And he wanted to live by the law. And he found himself that he could do okay. Not very good, but he can do okay with the first nine commandments. But oh, when he came to the tenth one about coveting, oh, he began to stumble. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> he would experience coveting, and he breaks the tenth commandments, and he falls into despair. In fact, the tenth commandment and the breaking of it and the coveting was tripping him into breaking all the other nine as well. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, Paul becomes conscious of sin, and he becomes aware of sin. Poor old Saul of Tarsus, I mean, he knew what covetousness was, and once he did, all he can think of is coveting. (laughs) All he can think of is coveting, once he discovered what that was. Beloved, this is the kind of immaturity, the kind of childishness that some Christians live in day in and day out. Sometimes you see churches, I'm aware of some, the the believers are never matured in Christ. They're very immature in Christ, and that's why they're at each other's throat all the time. They're fighting all the time. I mean, it just, it, it never ends. Beloved, the law reveals sin. The law activates sin. And that is why he kept on falling in sin. Now, I know that when we were children, I'm talking about my generation, okay, the uh, people in their 50s and 60s, when we were young, when we were adolescent, we were perfect. We were angels. We always did what our parents told us to do, right? That's what you tell our children, right? Well, some people do anyway. I don't. (laughs) But some of you have experienced adolescent rebellion. Now, I think some more degree than others. It works the same way with immature Christians. They try to live their Christian life depending on themselves. They try to live their Christian life their way. They try to live their Christian life depending on their own effort. But sooner or later, they get clobbered. Why? Because the law is a mirror. It reveals sin. It condemns sin. You know, when I look in the mirror first thing in the morning, my hair disheveled, and there's no shaving, and I look in the who the heck is that? <laughs> Imagine if I'd say, you know what? I'm going to keep looking at this mirror until I look better. Just think about this. Think about the logic of that. That's, what the, that's really the argument he's making here. What's the chance of me looking better? None! Until I clean up and shave and comb my hair... Nothing's changed. And that's what God's power does. It cleans you up. Maturity tells you your performance is not working. What you need to do is grow up. How many times we say that to Grow up. And I'm saying this to all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's grow up. The problem is not the mirror. It's your face. (laughs) It's my face. Your problem is not the law. 
Beloved, listen to me. The problem is not the law. It is sin. And this is the mark of Christian maturity. Not to blame the Ten Commandments, but to come to grips of the sinfulness of sin. That's really the word. I remember as a boy hearing somebody preaching about the sinfulness of sin, and I have never forgotten it. Pastor of the largest church in America was asked, why don't you preach against sin? He said, sin is such a negative concept. I said, dummy, yes, of course it is negative. But how do you know you need the positive until you know what the negative is? Beloved, it was March 4th. 1964, that I gave my life to Christ. So I have been studying the Word of God ever since. And the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I become aware of the sinfulness of sin. The more I walk with the Lord, I'm aware of the deception of sin. First pillar, freedom is love and not bondage. Second, maturity not immaturity. And thirdly, the third pillar, that do-it-yourself religion always going to frustrate you, always going to disappoint you. Look at verses 14 to 23, because here we come to Paul's personal testimony. That's his personal testimony. Through the years, I had the privilege and the honor of sitting at the feet of some great and godly men. I really have. I'm so thankful to the Lord that they were not one of those people who only tell you about their victories. I remember when I was a new Christian, and I would hear these big preachers talking about victory all the time, victory, victory, victory. Never talk about their failures. And I used to think there's something wrong with me. But I sat at the feet of some great men who have shared their hearts and opened their hearts and taught me how to have victory. And I know from my own life, from And I know that every serious-minded believer who's listening to me around the world or here in this sanctuary, we know experientially the enticement of sin is forever plaguing us. The allure of sin is forever beckoning us. The glamour of sin is forever enticing us. The glare of sin is forever calling us. As long as we live in this flesh, this blood and flesh, everywhere we turn, we see sin surrounding us. If you are an alert Christian, to fight sin with our own efforts, oh my goodness, if you do it on your own strength, it's only going to bring failure, frustrations, exasperation, and discouragement. And that is why the legalists give God a bad name. Did you know that? They give God a bad name because they try to live up to their standards, their own strength, and fail. And people are seeing it. They're watching it. They call themselves Christians. And that is why it is only when you and I allow the Holy Spirit of God to be the wind, because that's one of the names of the Holy Spirit, Ruach. He's the wind of the Holy Spirit, to blow on our sail that will pull us forward from victory to victory. At the risk of some of you might misunderstand me, that many times 
I speak with the Holy Spirit, and I pray to the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't, look, don't send me emails and letters. I have my theology correct. I pray to the Father through the Son. That's my regular prayer, but there are times when I, I feel compelled to say to the Holy Spirit, thank you for being my best friend. Thank you for being my paraclete, my comforter. Thank you for being my counselor. Thank you for being my guide. Thank you for being my convictor. Thank you for being my strength. And in the times when I grieve the Holy Spirit, I weep tears when I say to the Holy Spirit, please forgive me. I never want to grieve you. How I would grieve my best friend. Some time ago, I read about shepherding of sheep in the highlands of Scotland. This is not something that you would know from the Scripture or even in my own experience in the Middle East, because shepherding in the highlands of Scotland is very different. And when I read this story many, many years ago, it sort of resonated with me. In the highlands of Scotland, the biggest concern that a shepherd has over their sheep is they wander off, and they get stranded into these very steep and rocky crags. The sheep normally would jump a few feet at a time to go down. They see the sweet vegetation, and they follow it, and they, they will jump down a few feet at a time, a few feet at a time, and they follow the grass, and finally they run out. And when they run out and they see they can't get back up, they bleat so loud. But the shepherd does not immediately respond. Now, this is something, again, I would not have known unless I read about it. He waits until the sheep finishes eating all the vegetation. And sometimes not only waits a day or two, even longer, until the, the sheep cannot stand up. They're so weak. At that point, the herdsman lowers himself to the dangerous, lay on the dangerous ledge below and brings him back. You say, why? Oh, because, they tell me, I've never been a shepherd, <laughs> that sheep are very frisky. And if the shepherd tried to rescue them early, they would jump out of the ledge and, and over the cliff, and, and they'll die. Beloved, do it yourself. Religion is not only frustrating, it is dangerous. Ah, but if you allow the Holy Spirit to work freely in you, He's going to lift you up the freedom's highway every time. Love, not bondage. Maturity, not immaturity. Do it yourself. Religion is frustrating and dangerous. Finally, fourthly, surrender keeps you afloat. Keeps you afloat. Every genuine, maturing believer understands and feels what the Apostle Paul is feeling as he's writing those words. What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? I'm surrounded by sin. He's not saying that always falling in sin. He said, I'm just surrounded by I find it available all the time. This cry of Paul takes us 
where the Lord Jesus Christ begins His Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed the spiritual bankrupts, and know it, and confess it, because they will be blessed. Blessed are those who hate sin in their life, and they abhor it. I cannot count the times when I say to myself, when will I ever learn that it is surrender that will give me true freedom? Beloved, listen to me. I can testify to the fact that if you seek God with all of your heart, you will find yourself in a perfect freedom, because genuine believers are sensitive to sin. There's people who say, oh, no, no, you get to the point where you lick that, (laughs) don't fall for that. You see, growing closer to Jesus, growing closer to Jesus, that's what we talk about sanctification. You're growing closer to Jesus, become more like Christ. You're growing closer to Jesus is like getting closer to a bright light. All of a sudden you say, oh, there's some stain here. I didn't see that when I was away. Now I'm closer to the light. Or I'm closer to a magnifying mirror, and you get closer and closer. Oh, where all these little wrinkles come from? See, you're conscious of sin. Couldn't see them when you're too far away, but as you come closer, you say, why? Because Ephesians 4.30 tells us that sin grieves the Holy Spirit, and in 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us that sin is dishonoring to the Lord, and in 1 Peter 3.12 it says sin will keep answers to prayers from coming back. And in 1 Corinthians 9.27, it makes you spiritually powerless. And in Jeremiah 5.25, it withholds good things from God. And in Hebrews 12.57, it brings the Lord's chastisement. And in Psalm 51.12, it robs us from the joy of our salvation. And in 1 Corinthians 3.1, it inhibits our spiritual growth. And in 2 Timothy 2.21, it prevents us from being useful for the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians 10.21, it pollutes Christian atmosphere. And in 1 Corinthians 11.30, it can endanger us even physically. Every godly person, whether they lived in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they knew they were saved by grace. When Abraham was saved, he was saved by faith, by grace, through faith. 400 years before the law was given. Nobody will ever be saved by the law. Even in the, after the law, they never knew they were going to be saved by the law. Those same saints also knew that as they grow closer to the Lord, they begin to feel wretched in comparison to the holiness of God. You know what our problem is in these days? Is that many Christians compare themselves with each other. And then they'll pat themselves in the back and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is, and I'm not as bad as she is. That's, that's dangerous. Compare yourself with Jesus. That's who you want to compare yourself with. In fact, Isaiah, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, when Isaiah came into the throne room of God, he said, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. The closer you get to God's holiness, the clearer you see your sinfulness. But thanks be to God that the Apostle Paul does not leave us hanging here with verse 24, where he exclaimed, who can rescue me from this body of death? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. He did not say, 
What must I do to get delivered from this body of death? That's what a lot of Christians do. Uh, How can I respond? Or what program should I implement to get me out of this? Or what white paper I could write on the subject? Or what marketing program I could um, bring along? What 27-step program should I implement in my life? No, 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 no. No, no, million, no. The answer is, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Only surrender to God will give you deliverance. Only surrender to God will make us float to victory's shore. You get to the point where said, now that I've come to the end of my rope, now that I've come to the end of myself, now that I have come to the end of my efforts, I know where to go for victory. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Say it again. Thanks be to God through our Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.